Hello everyone and welcome to our Saturday broadcast. Here we are again to answer questions about mindfulness, meditation, and Buddhism. We're here to help. So we're looking for questions from people who would benefit from the help. This isn't an intellectual exercise or a forum for the curious. Well, if you're looking for help, maybe you don't know much about Buddhism or meditation and you're curious as to whether Buddhism might help you, that's fine. That's a good reason to be here. Hopefully we can provide some guidance. So we'll start answering questions at a quarter after the hour, 15 minutes after the hour, as usual. First 15 minutes will be silent meditation. Gives us a chance to prepare ourselves and ensure that, or to help ensure that we enter into this with a clear and focused mind. And to give, of course, uh, everyone a chance to ask questions. So now that you're here, if you have questions, go ahead and ask them. Once you've done that, or if you don't have any questions and just want to listen to what others have to ask, just go off and do walking or sitting for the next 13 minutes. A quarter after the hour, we'll be back to start answering.
All right, we're back. So from here on, we would ask that the only thing added to chat is questions. Still have questions? Go ahead and ask. Otherwise, just close your eyes. Listen. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. When a song or image or memory is stuck in your head, do you note thinking or hearing slash seeing? Hearing or seeing. Thinking is for thoughts. Just note seeing, seeing or hearing, hearing until it goes away. I am facing a lot of failures in my life right now. I struggle to get a job. My parents lost all wealth and need my support. My girlfriend left me. I keep trying hard, but it's getting harder. Any advice? Well, a hardship is hard. There's no getting around that. No sugarcoating it. But um, there are different levels of hardship. There's the conceptual hardship, which you certainly can overcome through mindfulness. Conceptual ideas like you know, having lost wealth, having lost loss in general, having lost a, a relationship, that sort of thing. Those things are not real. doesn't make them hurt any less, but what's hurting is the, conce the concept of it. The reality doesn't change. A person can't leave you. That's just something that's conceptually understood between the two of you in your minds. So if you can um, if you can see through those and be mindful of your actual experience, then you can come closer to understanding what the real problems are, which are um, which are, let's say, threefold. So the first is your attachments. Rather, no, the first is your suffering. So there's going to be physical pain and mental pain. And these are real problems. Uh, they, they don't go away when you note them necessarily. If you're hungry, you, you stay hungry, even though you might not hungry, hungry. Uh, if you're in pain or if you're sick, uh, or if you're if you have all sorts of hardships like cold or heat or or uh, being crowded or the, the, those sorts of things like physical reality, uh, even mental reality, your your activities can require you to think a lot. If you have to work, um, you can be stressed out because of taxed by the interactions with other people, be they family or or employers or employees or that sort of thing um, and so these are sort of the inevitable which you're not going to be able to fix but appreciating that and appreciating them as being inevitable helps to free you from the second type of problem that I already mentioned which are really more what you might call real problems and that is your reaction to them your, your likes or dislikes so being sad and upset that your girlfriend left you, being sad and upset that you've 
lost your wealth, uh, being stressed by the fact that you have to do certain things that you don't want to do and that sort of thing. Really, the the inevitable sufferings of life are are not um, are, are not really of any concern in the sense that they they don't have to hurt, they don't have to upset you. It is possible to be hungry, for example, without suffering from it. It's just a feeling of of weakness. It is possible to be in pain and not suffer from it. It's just a feeling, right? It is possible to be tired. It is possible to be um, mentally stressed or or um, uh, distracted by all of the things you have to think about without really suffering from it because you're not upset by it. And so being able to separate these two out really is one of the main ways that mindfulness helps you overcome your problems. When you uh, see the uh, likes and dislikes uh, for what they are, as being separate from the actual experiences. And you start to see that uh, there, there's a difference. You're able to change the way you look at your experiences. So you're able to experience pain as just pain and sort of circumvent the, uh, or, or uh, prevent, let's say, the uh, disliking of the pain to come up. When you think about your girlfriend or you see a, an image of her or you have a memory, you're able to note that, you're able to be present with that experience in a new way without uh, reacting to it. So the, the old behavior would be to like and to want, and, and now as a result of not being able to get, to be upset. Um, and the fear in regards to parents losing wealth, the stress in regards to having to deal with all of that, all of this is just reaction. And if you can change the way you interact, if you start to cultivate mindfulness, then you can interact with all of the inevitable sufferings of life in a way that you don't suffer uh, the same way as you did before. The third type of problem is the uh, cause for the reaction. So simply changing your habits is great, and it is the way, but it has another effect that you have to be aware of, and that is changing your understanding. And so the third type of problem is misunderstanding or, or lack of understanding, ignorance about the nature of your experiences. And this is what the ultimate goal of mindfulness practice is, what we call vipassana, which means seeing clearly. So you'll start to see that the things that you react to are not worth reacting to, that in fact there's nothing worth getting upset about in the world. You start to see that the, the, the nature of things is not really the way you thought. There is no essence to things, uh, no substance to reality. It's all just moments of experience. And as you look, start to look at things that way, it's not even that you have to use mindfulness to, to prevent the, uh, the upset from coming. It's just you, you realize that there's no benefit and there's actually harm that comes from getting upset. You start to see that clearly and your mind just lets go. So sort of a bit of a detailed answer for this sort of problem. But you, you, your question sort of epitomizes the nature of life and, and the nature of suffering and the reason for mindfulness practice to exist in the first place. I don't know if you've read our, our meditation booklet. That might be a good place to start uh, working on some of these problems that I mentioned. And we have an at-home course that you can, of course, enroll in. It's all free. It not, not, doesn't cost any money. So 
consider that. When I note, I notice I reflexively mouth the words of the noting, making it hard to stay at the stomach when noting rising, falling. Am I doing something wrong, or do I accept it as out of my control? Yeah, it's not really something you're doing wrong. I mean, you might say technically it's wrong. That's probably okay to say. Um, but you do have to accept it as being out of your control, and so that doesn't mean you do nothing about it and you, you accept it as the way you're going to be practicing. It means you actually note that. What you have to do and what you really are, are what you're required to do is to note that you can note the feeling of mouthing the words. You can just say knowing if you know that it's happening. But make sure you're noting it and be clear that that's not the correct way to, to that's not what is expected of the practice. That's extra. It's something that is not a part of the mindfulness practice. So make sure you're noting it when it happens. And it'll eventually go away you have to if you're clear that it's not what you should be doing then eventually your mind will just give it up does one know when the buddha maitreya will come can we wish to meet him in the metta meditation Hmm. Well, the only thing I'll say about this question is that a Buddha is a, a type of being that arises uh, from from time to time. It's not like every other week they arise. And there is a prophecy that we're, has been handed down by the Buddha that there is another Buddha coming called Meteya. And it has nothing to do with metta meditation. But um, if you practice the Buddha's teaching, then that puts you in a position to be more likely to to um, incline toward, in a way that would put you in a position to meet Buddha Metteya. Not to say that it's a guarantee, but it makes it more likely, of course, if you are more of a Buddhist sort of person. And if you do happen to meet him, of course, it for sure makes it a lot easier to actually appreciate his teachings and practice them. But that's just Buddhist practice in general, nothing particular about metta meditation. When that's going to happen, it's a long ways away. The, the, the prophecy is that beings will have a much longer lifespan of 20,000 years or something. Maybe that's just an exaggeration, I don't know. But the world is supposed to get a lot worse and then start to get better. So look for the world to start to get quite a bit better, uh, quite a bit more wholesome before Maitreya comes. Are Sankaras the cause of rebirth? Well, Sankara is a complicated word. So, I mean, Sankaras are everything that arises. So rebirth is a sankara. That which causes rebirth is a sankara. Those things, the anything, everything that causes rebirth is a sankara. Every moment of your existence, everything that arises is a sankara. So the problem is this word is used by some groups with very specific meaning. I know there's one group in particular, that one Buddhist, Theravada Buddhist meditation group, that uses this word 
in a very specific way. Uh, but that's only one of, and it's not wrong usage of the word. It's just it gets a little bit awkward because you have to realize there's many meanings of this word. And as I said, the most uh, all-encompassing one is anything that arises, anything that is formed. I mean, by that it means something that arises and therefore ceases. Sabe sankara anicca. All sankaras are impermanent; they arise and cease, and so those refer to everything except. Nibbana. Nibbana is not something that arises and therefore not something that ceases. But um, there is a, a meaning of the word that refers to uh, the fourth of the five aggregates, of course, and that is the meaning of that word is mental formations. So qualities of mind, um, something that arises based on an experience like if you see someone very tall and you say to yourself boy that person is exceptionally tall well they aren't exceptionally tall except you've judged them to be because they're taller than others so in comparison so you gave rise to this it wasn't inherent in the experience if you see someone and you say boy that person's very beautiful or that person's very ugly uh, or so on uh, and and by extension there are sankaras like when you like something, you see some someone you perceive as beautiful, you like that, or someone something that's ugly, or you smell a smell that's uh, that's disgusting, you dislike it, or you feel pain. So sankaras are all of those, and those sankaras, the the ones that are clinging, because clinging is the cause of of becoming and therefore the cause of rebirth. So since clinging is one type of sankara. Uh, both as a mental formation and just as a formation in general. Complicated word. What books do you recommend I start reading on Buddhism? Well, I do kind of recommend reading our booklet on how to meditate. See, the thing is, reading is not really the best way to start with Buddhism. You should study how to practice Buddhism, which is a little bit, I think, a little bit different than what you might expect. You might think, well, I should um, I should learn about the philosophy first. And okay, it's true that you have to learn about why you would practice, but it's little more than, than the explanation of why, of of well, claims, for example, that Buddha, that mindfulness or Buddhist practice frees you from suffering, and then explanations may be on how that happens. But that sort of thing, you get you get simple explanations of those sorts of things from. I think our booklet has some of that in it. So it's what we call just enough. There's two ways of studying Buddhism. You can study everything, which means you really just read all of the Buddhist teaching. Uh, or you can read just enough, learn just enough. How do you practice? Why do you practice? And then practice. And in general, either way, I think you really have to uh, measure your practice with your study so that you're not studying more than you practice. Uh, I think if you practice a lot without any study in the sense of without having any instruction or any guidance, that can be problematic. So no study whatsoever can be 
problematic, of course, because you just start practicing wrong. Um, but on the other hand, if you practice, if you study a lot, it becomes kind of a crutch and a replacement for practice. It's easier, of course, than actually being mindful, actually practicing. So it can actually get in the way. It can also distract you. So it can create undue doubt um, and undue restlessness, excess doubt and restlessness, um, because you know too much and you and actually you know nothing. I have an upcoming event that's making me anxious. I keep thinking about it. How do I stop myself from always thinking about it? Right. Well, so two things. First, you do not stop yourself from thinking, because why thinking isn't the problem. The event is not what's making you anxious, um, or it's not proper to look at it that way. There's something a little bit uh, raw, in inaccurate with that statement. You are reacting to the event with anxiety. And why that's different is because if the event were making you anxious, then you couldn't escape that, right? This event is what's doing it to you. But nothing, external things don't have that power over us. They don't have the power to make us anything. If you say it as, I react with anxiety, or anxiety, if you want to be more technical, anxiety arises uh, based on the remembrance of the event and the, you would have to say, the lack of, of clarity surrounding that experience. That's what the truth is. So, be clear that there's a difference, there's a distinction between the thinking about something and the anxiety about it. Uh, you don't actually have to stop yourself from thinking about the event, because, again, it's not making you anxious. That's how you react to it. Why do you react that way? That's what's interesting. Um, you react that way because of lack of clarity, as I said. So rather than trying to stop thinking about it, try and take the thinking as an object. Say to yourself, for example, thinking, thinking. And also note the anxiety, because anxiety becomes a feedback loop where you get anxious about the anxiety, the anxiety causes you, you give power to the thought, and the thought is more likely to come back again as it becomes charged with anxiety. It's like a feeding the anxiety, feeding the thoughts. So, of course, they come back more because they're now, uh, it's something to do with the brain. You, The anxiety creates energy and the brain um, stores that thought and, of course, comes back with it again and again and again until you've dealt with it. Maybe an evolutionary trait in the brain because normally we'd have to, if it was anxiety would mean, oh, this is something that's important. Better deal with it or else there could be problems. But, um, Regardless, uh, noting the anxiety is useful as well. Mostly, most importantly, for changing the way you look at it, helping you see that the thoughts are meaningless, the event is not something um, that gives any reason to be anxious, and moreover, anxiety is, is uh, useless, is harmful, has no benefit to it, which you know. You just aren't clear about how to... Uh, re 
situate, re, re, redirect the mind to, to change your perspective about the experience, to the, the correct way of approaching that uh, experience. So if you've maybe read our booklet on how to meditate, it should help with that. You could also do the at-home course, of course. Following an intensive retreat, I feel anxiety, huge tension in different parts of the body, and a lot of fear. In meditation, it is possible to watch them, but what to do outside of practice? It's overwhelming. So it, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it wasn't in our tradition. If it was, well, that's uh, a whole other kettle of barrel of <laughs> a whole other situation. Uh, but assuming it's not in our tradition, um, I, I would recommend that maybe you, if you're interested, you could look into how we practice. And why I say it's probably not is because this isn't really something, first of all, it's something that I would be a little bit surprised, not hugely surprised, but be surprised if you'd done a course in our tradition and have these arise. But it's it, it's possible. It certainly is possible that you could come away from our practice and for whatever reason, feel great anxiety and tension and fear. But the thing is, it's hard to believe that you wouldn't know how to deal with those, uh, even on a daily level, because we give you very concrete means of dealing with them. It's not watching them per se, and that's uh, another indication that this is probably some other tradition, maybe not, but uh, assuming that it is, rather than watching them, try and remind yourself that they are just anxiety, they are just tension, they are just fear. It's something you can do at any time. You don't need to be sitting in meditation. You don't need huge levels of concentration that would be uh, afforded to you by sitting cross-legged with your eyes closed. Under those strong, concentrated states, try and just continuously remind yourself. If you're anxious, you would just say to yourself, anxious, anxious. If you're tense, you would say tense, tense. You're afraid, you would say afraid, afraid. And the key is you're not trying to get rid of them. I mean, you, you understand that it sounds like by saying you were watching them. But rather than watching them, uh, which relies on uh, a certain amount of intense concentration, try and uh, use the, a mantra to remind yourself, hey, it's just anxiety, hey, it's just tension, hey, it's just fear. Even if you're overwhelmed, you can just say overwhelmed, overwhelmed. So assuming you, you aren't practicing, but even if you are, um, maybe reread our booklet, maybe uh, it's hard to say, uh, hard to believe that you, you could get that. You wouldn't be able to know what to do if you've done practice in our tradition. So maybe try that out. And if somehow you still aren't, you've done, this is an intensive course in our tradition and you're still having this problem, I guess the only thing I could say then is be clear in your mind that you're not trying to make these things go away. Because yeah, that's often the case with meditators who expect them to go away when they note, and that's not something, that's not helpful. Rather than trying to make things, even the bad things, go away, change your perspective so that you just try to learn about them, try to become more familiar with them, even the fear, even the anxiety. And you do that by reminding yourself, not just by watching. It's actually important that you remind yourself because watching is watching with your uh, existent 
perspective, right? Your 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 previous perspective. When you remind yourself, this is pain, this is anxiety, etc. Um, you're straightening the mind. You're creating a clearer perspective. You're reminding yourself in a way that corrects your perspective. Because if you had a clear perspective, anxiety and fear wouldn't arise in the first place. So as you uh, straighten your perspective, create a clarity of perspective, you you should see um, they just don't arise. I think I'm in a position now where I can safely wean off antidepressants with assistance from my doctor. Is this required before I do an at-home course, or should I jump right in now? It's not technically required. Um, I don't have a perfect answer for you. Um, I think it kind of depends on your actual situation. How much antidepressants are you taking? If you're taking a lot, then it's probably going to be less uh, effective to take a, an at-home course because you have to be clear. Our stance on this is that it is less effective when you're on antidepressants in general. And I, I know they're not all exactly the same, but generally speaking, I don't think there's a significant uh, difference among the various antidepressants. It's the, the general idea is they're, they are suppressing the sort of states that we're trying to become more familiar with. So it, it allows you to avoid what we're trying to face. And that's just um, unavoidable and clearly reduces the value of the practice. Now, that being said, it doesn't remove the value of the practice. So you can decide for yourself, is it uh, imperative that you start some formal meditation practice uh, immediately based on your mental situation or, or even your life situation? Then you might think, well, I will start weaning myself off while, while I start the at-home course. On the other hand, you might say, no, it, it shouldn't take long. I'll wean myself off and then I'll start the at-home course. Either way, I guess, no matter what, for sure, for sure, read our booklet and start to practice. Even if you decide to hold off the at-home course uh, while you work to manage the, uh, the medication, if you can get it down to, to a very low level then I would say, uh, you, you could say, well, it's at, at this point, it's more, it starts to become a little more like a placebo than anything as you take less and less. And if you've ever read these studies, apparently placebos, placebo antidepressants, which means pills that have no effect, are actually, um, so in some cases, comparable to actually taking antidepressants. So don't don't uh, trivialize the importance of, of the placebo effect, the actual um, ritual of taking a pill with the idea that it's going to help you. Um, and so at that point, it, it, the meditation would likely help to wean you off the medication completely. And so it could be quite fruitful. I am very scared of cockroaches. Every time I see one, I run away. Any advice? 
Well, I mean, simply, obviously, read our booklet and maybe do the at-home course. Um, but some of these phobias are are deep, and they make it very hard to be mindful. I think you have to... Take some time to break apart the experience because it becomes monolithic in our minds. It's a very singular cockroach equals fear. And there, it's a bit more complicated than that. You're actually having a, an experience of, of, of vision before anything else. Before you even realize it's a cockroach, there's vision. So you can... Start by learning how to note seeing, seeing, and how to be able to separate what you see from how you react to it. And with the idea that eventually that will help when you first see the cockroach. But then, of course, also noting the fear. Um, because, let's put it this way, there are, there are at least three parts to this. There's the seeing, there's the reacting, and then there's the running away. There's actually more. It's It's more complicated than even that, but... To simplify it, it's these three things. And neither one or none of these necessitates the next one. So seeing the cockroach doesn't um, necessitate, or there's no reason, it's not reasonable, it's not a reasonable response to seeing a cockroach getting af to get afraid of it. Getting afraid is not a reasonable response. It's not rational, it's not wise. It's not based on clarity. It is based on delusion and ignorance. Um, and running away is also not a reasonable response to getting afraid, which is something that we might also miss, thinking that if I'm, I'm afraid, therefore I should run away. And there's actually no relationship, of course. People who are afraid of mice, people who are afraid of cockroaches, just because you're afraid of it, it has no... Um, it provides no support to the decision to run away. And so not to trivialize or, or well, not to trivialize your experience, but uh, seeing these and appreciating these will help you get your head around the so finding a solution. So noting the seeing, noting the fear, and being clear in your mind that the answer is not A, to get afraid, or B, to run away. When you are afraid, the answer that you try to teach yourself is to be familiar with the fear, to, to face the fear. And you do this by saying to yourself, afraid, afraid. Reminding yourself it's just fear. And you do this by saying to yourself, seeing, seeing. Reminding yourself that it's just seeing. And that breaks this chain, which is a bit more complicated than just those three, but really you don't have to get any more complicated. There's no benefit. Those three is perfectly fine for uh, addressing the problem. Just say, seeing, seeing, and afraid, afraid. There can be other things like thinking. Thoughts might come up of getting rid of the cockroach or thoughts of running away. You can say wanting to run away if you want, wanting, wanting, that sort of thing. You can also note the disliking because fear is actually a disliking mind state. So there, there's anger at the base. And you can note that. With mindfulness, I was able to keep my environment clean and tidy for the first time. 
How best may I apply the same to procrastination? I would like to be able to get things done mindfully. Well, procrastination isn't really a thing. This question comes up a lot. Um, there's um, there's realities or experiences that lead to what we identify as procrastination, but procrastination isn't a reality. And that's important because a lot of things aren't reality, and when we take them to be problems, where it's like barking up the wrong tree, or it's creating a boogeyman, and it, it, it distracts you from what's really going on. So the first step is to focus not on procrastination, but on the problem. Of course, part of the problem can be your identification of the procrastination in the sense that you feel upset and frustrated and guilty because you're procrastinating. So this concept arises of I'm procrastinating and you get upset about that. Now, those things are all reality, and they're probably the first um, point of attack where you will face those when you're upset or frustrated or feeling guilty or worried or afraid that you might not meet a deadline or that sort of thing noting all of those. But on a deeper level, you're going to have to address the reasons for not doing things when you're clear that they are what you should be doing. Mindfulness uh, helps you to do things that uh, are hard to do, are unpleasant to do, are, are a cause for aversion, because you're able to avoid the aversion by by changing your perspective towards them. So ultimately, the, the only real answer I have, I mean, that's all just theory, but the real answer is uh, more practice. Try and do some intensive practice if you can, if you've done or if you haven't done the at-home course, do the at-home course. If you have, then find a way to do an intensive course. Come to our center. Our center is up and running here in Canada, so you're always welcome. Also, one last thing, I guess, is note when you want, you want to be able to get things done. Note the wanting, the liking, the wishing, because it's also a craving, and you can't control things in that way. And that that's not that's not helpful. The wanting to be able to do things, try and uh, focus on what is rather than what you, the way you want things to be. You'll you'll find that good things come if you focus not on how you want to be or who you want to be. Focus on who you are and try to understand the complex aspects of who you are because then you'll see the ones that are harmful and, and the ones that are helpful. Is the noting practice you teach best understood as a form of sense restraint? Best understood as a form of mindfulness. But um, is it a form of sense restraint as well? Yes. Restraint is, um, there's different kinds of restraint. It's called samwara, and sati samwara is one of them. Banya samwara is another one, wisdom, restraint through wisdom. But this one is sati samwara, restraint through mindfulness. Viriya samwara is one, sila samwara. Sila would be just... Um, because of keeping the precepts, so you restrain yourself because you know it's against the rules. Killing is against the rules, so you don't do it. Viriya samwara, you you uh, force yourself, just you you force yourself not to do it with effort. And I think the last one is 
think the last one is Samadhi Samurai. I want to say I'm actually not 100% sure. Anyway. So you, but I want to say Samadhi because you could just repress it with uh, entering into a very trance state of mind and then uh, the sensual desire doesn't arise. Jhana Samurai is maybe what it's called. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think it's Jhana Samurai. Don't quote me on that. Our existential threats to the environment, something we as meditators should think about, or is it another distraction? I think it's reasonable, not as meditators, but as human beings. Uh, we are not islands. Monks, I would say, have to think about it a lot less, but still... I think it's reasonable and uh, not something you should associate with your meditation practice, but something you should see as a part of what meditation practice is for, and that's for being uh, reasonable and doing the right thing at all times, right? having the right perspective on things. And the, the thing about the environment, threats to the environment, it's not exactly threats to the environment, it's greed and and uh, waste and well waste is not even a problem either but greed and um, compassion for example where we cons are considerate of others compassion is let's say consideration is a better word being considerate and understanding that our our actions affect the others around us so not to litter which is not a big deal of course but by extension, the more important ones like not to pollute, uh, not to use too much. So to be conscious of, of our overconsumption and that sort of thing and try to consume in ways that are uh, considerate of others, other beings. Because honestly, protecting the environment isn't the point. It's protecting humans and, and animals as well, protecting living beings. Not even protecting plants because they're not sentient. They don't suffer so directly the, the point is to be considerate of, of others not to prevent all beings from suffering but to be considerate so that you're not egregious in your contribution to the suffering of others there seem to be studies that show that positivity or good moods can lead to happiness long term but you said that happiness doesn't cause happiness that goodness does why could those results be so i would say it's because of the human potential for happiness. Uh, and there are lots of ways you can abuse that potential. It's like you have a bank account when you're born a human being, and that bank account's pretty full of a lot you can do with it. Or some people have bigger bank accounts than others, but you can use that. And so if your goal is to be happy, if your focus is to create happiness, there are ways to do that. Um, 
long term has to be longer term than what you're describing though because it it's still a inclination uh, towards the experience of pleasant feelings and there is an attachment to that and so the longer term thinking is that eventually there comes a point where uh you can't get what you want and as a result you suffer there there is i'm cautious because there is some part of this that is going to be wholesome for example um people who are who cultivate this sort of idea often also cultivate contentment so when you talk about positivity and good moods a part of that is being okay with bad experiences and so there's a there's some goodness in there but there is a part it's not positivity and i think what we can do is separate these two because positivity has a part of it that's going to be the the uh liking of being happy the um trying to find pleasure right um so the contentment allows for that when you when you gain this what you might call wisdom even just on a worldly level but appreciation that um the best way to be with whatever experience you have is to be at peace with it and so that that is somehow wholesome it, it relates to mindfulness of course mindfulness is what, what allows for that uh, to the greatest degree when you're mindful you become more content you're okay with everything but that's not positivity it's kind of a a, a mixing here uh, of concepts so when you talk about positivity or good moods because a part of it as it is going to be the contentment but a part of it is going to be the purposeful cultivation of pleasure so the trying to be happy trying to feel happiness and and so what you'll see also is is a is a sort of a discontent in the sense of trying let's say trying to make the most out of a situation which so on the one hand you're content but then you say well i am this is okay because i can do this and this makes me happy right so suppose you have very very uh, expensive ingredients in your refrigerator and so you can make very delicious food and that makes you happy but then you get uh you, you your financial situation changes and suddenly you have more coarse uh ingredients in your fridge and so you say that's okay i'll be okay with this because i can be happy with a different kind of food so a part of the that, so long story short the the there's a part of it that's going to sustain and that's the contentment but the other part what you do with the contentment is going to be based on on greed and and you cannot escape the eventual disappointment i mean the the cons the constant disappointment which people will often gloss over or or ignore 
but it comes. You are still going to be discontent. You are still going to be ignorant and and incapable of dealing with um, great loss and disappointment because it actually does. It isn't the preparation. Um, positivity, um, finding the good in things, isn't the solution that people think it is. What it is a solution for, and why it works, is for people who do have still money in their bank account, so to speak, meaning their luck hasn't run out, their their goodness hasn't run out. Goodness is what fills the bank account. And so contentment can be seen to some extent to do that, but lots of other things do it as well and, and do it better. So why it works is because it works for people who you might say we might say have good luck, but it's not really luck. It's just their their cert their circumstances allow for it. They aren't the sort of people who have lost a child, or they aren't the sort of person who have who has lost um, uh, their health, or or lost their their entire livelihood, or or had something devastating happen to them. Furthermore, it works for people who were born that way. Because, and and this still relates to goodness, but some people, and this is a sort of a scientific uh, conclusion that that has come through through clinical study, that some people are more wired to be happy. They're more wired to see the positivity. They're they're, and others are more wired to react negatively, to become depressed, to become upset. They're less capable of feeling happy. But that still is part of this long-term um, goodness, because only goodness, is, only goodness is this sort of thing that allows your mind, your, your brain to develop in such a way that allows you to be happy. So people with different kinds of brain, I would say, are, are um well, in this way, are are going to be that way because of their their qualities of mind that they developed the clarity and the, the kindness and the goodness. Furthermore, because that is the case, um, we don't make because all of those things are the case. Um, the 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 potential for bad things to happen and the potential for uh, your brain to be unable to make you happy. Right. For so, for some people, it's not that they decide not to be positive. It's that their brain doesn't allow them to nearly as easily as others. And because that is the case, we, for that reason, we see that happiness is not the goal. Happy feelings are not uh, a solution because they're not permanent. Even if you're lucky to be that sort of person, where a nothing bad happens to you, and b your brain allows you to be happy very easily. Um, that also is not permanent. It's not stable. It's not reliable. It can be very reliable in this life, uh, for the most part. But this life is just a blink of the eye. And so, no. Uh, and so, true happiness is not a happy feeling, because again, those happy feelings are not what allows you to experience happiness not in the long term and and again to put it quite simply because it, the, the, all that's allowing that is the storehouse of goodness that 
um, allows you your brain to function properly, that allows you to avoid bad circumstances. Um, but yeah, allows you to feel happy for all these various reasons. It's com more complicated, I suppose, and um, really you have to dig down and and figure out what is meant by these words, positivity and good moods, and happiness long-term. But uh, I hope, I, I think that what the things I've said sort of show that it's a little more complicated than that, and it still, it holds uh, far more reliably, or, or really reliable in a way that positivity and good moods don't, that goodness uh, is is the way to find happiness that's i mean that's literally the definition of goodness those things that lead to happiness happiness is not such a thing Dante, we've crossed the hour we've asked all the questions in the top tier okay well thank you all good questions Wish you all a good week. May everyone who is happy, may they find greater happiness. For those who are uh, unhappy, may they become free from suffering. May all beings, may all of you listening and all of us here find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Thank you especially, Jim and Chris, for your help and for everyone who helps to make this broadcast possible. Sadhu. Uh, do.